At this conference, we have seen the release of some faithful brothers, and we have sustained the callings of others. In this rotation, so familiar in the Church, we do not step down when we are released, and we do not step up when we are called. There is no up or down in the service of the Lord. There is only forward or backward. And that difference depends on how we accept and act upon our releases and our callings. I once presided at the release of a young stake president who had given fine service for nine years and was now rejoicing in his release and in the new calling he and his wife had just received. They were called to be the nursery leaders in their ward. Only in this Church would that be seen as equally honorable. While addressing a women's conference, President Linda K. Burton of the Relief Society said, We hope to instill within each of us a greater desire to better understand the priesthood. That need applies to all of us, and I will pursue it by speaking of the keys and authority of the priesthood. Since these subjects are of equal concern to men and to women, I am pleased that these proceedings are broadcast and published for all members of the Church. Priesthood power blesses all of us. Priesthood keys direct women as well as men. And priesthood ordinances and priesthood authority pertain to women as well as men. President Joseph F. Smith described the priesthood as the power of God delegated to man by which man can act in the earth for the salvation of the human family. Other leaders have taught us that the priesthood is the consummate power on this earth. It is the power by which the earth was created. The scriptures teach that this same priesthood, which was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. Thus, the priesthood is the power by which we will be resurrected and proceed to eternal life. The understanding we seek begins with an understanding of the keys of the priesthood. Priesthood keys are the authority God has given to priesthood holders to direct, control, and govern the use of His priesthood on the earth. Every act or ordinance performed in the Church is done under the direct or indirect authorization of one holding the keys for that function. As Elder M. Russell Ballard has explained, those who have priesthood keys literally make it possible for all who serve faithfully under their direction to exercise priesthood authority and have access to priesthood power. In controlling the exercise of priesthood authority, the function of priesthood keys both enlarges and limits. It enlarges by making it possible for priesthood authority and blessings to be available for all of God's children. It limits 
by directing who will be given the authority of the priesthood, who will hold its offices, and how its rights and powers will be conferred. <clears throat> For example, a person who holds the priesthood is not able to confer his office or authority on another unless authorized by one who holds the keys. Without that authorization, the ordination would be invalid. This explains why a priesthood holder, regardless of office, cannot ordain a member of his family or administer the sacrament in his own home without authorization from the one who holds the appropriate keys. With the exception of the sacred work that sisters do in the temple under the keys held by the temple president, which I will describe hereafter, only one who holds a priesthood office can officiate in a priesthood ordinance, and all authorized priesthood ordinances are recorded on the records of the Church. <clears throat> Ultimately, all keys of the priesthood are held by the Lord Jesus Christ, whose priesthood it is. He is the one who determines what keys are delegated to mortals and how those keys will be used. We're accustomed to thinking that all keys of the priesthood were conferred on Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple, but the scripture states that all that was conferred there were the keys of this dispensation. At General Conference many years ago, President Spencer W. Kimball reminded us that there are other priesthood keys that have not been given to man on the earth including the keys of creation and resurrection. The divine nature of the limitations put upon the exercise of priesthood keys explains an essential contrast between decisions on matters of Church administration and decisions affecting the priesthood. The First Presidency and the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, who preside over the Church, are empowered to make many decisions affecting Church policies and procedures, matters such as the location of Church buildings and the ages for missionary service. But even though these presiding authorities hold and exercise all of the keys delegated to men in this dispensation, they are not free to alter the divinely decreed pattern that only men will hold offices in the priesthood. I come now to the subject of priesthood authority. I begin with the three principles just discussed. One, priesthood is the power of God delegated to man to act for the salvation of the human family. Two, Priesthood authority is governed by priesthood holders who hold priesthood keys. And three, since the scriptures state that all other authorities and offices in the Church are appendages to this Melchizedek priesthood, all that is done under the direction of those priesthood keys is done with priesthood authority. How does this apply to women? In an address to the Relief Society, President Joseph Fielding Smith 
then president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said this, While the sisters have not been given the priesthood, it has not been conferred upon them, that does not mean that the Lord has not given unto them authority. A person may have authority given to him or a sister to her to do certain things in the Church that are binding and absolutely necessary for our salvation, such as the work that our sisters do in the house of the Lord. They have authority given unto them to do some great and wonderful things, sacred unto the Lord, and binding just as thoroughly as are the blessings that are given by men who hold the priesthood." End quote. In that notable address, President Smith said again and again that women have been given authority. To the women, he said, you can speak with authority because the Lord has placed authority upon you. He also said that the Relief Society has been given power and authority to do a great many things. The work which they do is done by divine authority. End of quote. And of course, the church work done by women or men, whether in the temple or in the wards or branches, is done under the direction of those who hold priesthood keys. Thus, speaking of the Relief Society, President Smith explained, The Lord has given to them this great organization where they have authority to serve under the direction of the bishops of the wards, looking after the interests of our people, both spiritually and temporally." End quote. Thus, it is truly said that Relief Society is not just a class for women, but something they belong to, a divinely established appendage to the priesthood. We are not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings. But what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she is given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functions in an office or calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. Whoever exercises priesthood authority should forget about their rights and concentrate on their responsibilities. That is a principle needed in society at large. The famous Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn is quoted as saying, It is time to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. Latter-day Saints surely recognize that qualifying for exaltation is not a matter of asserting rights, but a matter of fulfilling responsibilities. The Lord has directed that only men will be ordained to offices in the priesthood. 
But, as various Church leaders have emphasized, men are not the priesthood. Men hold the priesthood with a sacred duty to use it for the blessing of all of the children of God. The greatest power God has given to His sons cannot be exercised without the companionship of one of His daughters, because only to His daughters has God given the power to be a creator of bodies so that God's design and the great plan might meet fruition. Those are the words of President J. Reuben Clark. He continued, quote, This is the place of our wives and of our mothers in the eternal plan. They are not bearers of the priesthood. They are not charged with carrying out the duties and functions of the priesthood nor are they laden with its responsibilities. They are builders and organizers under its power and partakers of its blessings, possessing the complement of the priesthood powers and possessing a function as divinely called, as eternally important in its place as the priesthood itself." In those inspired words, President Clark was speaking of the family. As stated in the family proclamation, the father presides in the family and he and the mother have separate responsibilities, but they are obligated to help one another as equal partners. Some years before the family proclamation, President Spencer W. Kimball gave this inspired explanation. When we speak of marriage as a partnership, Let us speak of marriage as a full partnership. We do not want our LDS women to be silent partners or limited partners in that eternal assignment. Please be a contributing and full partner." In the eyes of God, whether in the Church or in the family, women and men are equal with different responsibilities. I close with some truths about the blessings of the priesthood. Unlike priesthood keys and priesthood ordinations, the blessings of the priesthood are available to women and to men on the same terms. The gift of the Holy Ghost and the blessings of the temple are familiar illustrations of this truth. In his insightful talk at BYU Education Week last summer, Elder M. Russell Ballard gave these teachings. Our Church doctrine places women equal to and yet different from men. God does not regard either gender as better or more important than the other. When men and women go to the temple, they are both endowed with the same power, which is priesthood power. Access to the power and blessings of the priesthood is available to all of God's children. I testify of the power and blessings of the priesthood of God, available for his sons and daughters alike. I testify of the authority of the priesthood, which functions throughout all of the offices and activities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I testify of the divinely directed function of the keys of the priesthood, held and exercised in their fullness 
by our prophet president, Thomas S. Monson. Finally, and most important, I testify of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose priesthood this is and whose servants we are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren, how good it is to be with you once again. I pray for heavenly help as I respond to the opportunity to address you. Beyond this conference center are additional thousands assembled in chapels and in other settings throughout much of the world. A common thread binds all of us together, for we have been entrusted to bear the priesthood of God. We are here upon the earth at a remarkable period of its history. Our opportunities are almost limitless, and yet we also face a multitude of challenges, some of them unique to our time. We live in a world where moral values have in great measure been tossed aside, where sin is flagrantly on display and where temptations to stray from the straight and narrow path surround us. We are faced with persistent pressures and insidious influences, tearing down what is decent and attempting to substitute the shallow philosophies and practices of a secular society. Because of these and other challenges, decisions are constantly before us which can determine our destiny. In order to make the correct decisions, courage is needed. The courage to say no when we should. The courage to say yes when that is appropriate. The courage to do the right thing because it's right. Inasmuch as the trend in society today is rapidly moving away from the values and principles the Lord has given us, we will almost certainly be called upon to defend that which we believe. Will we have the courage to do so? Said President J. Reuben Clark, Jr., who for many years was a member of the First Presidency, not unknown are cases where those of presumed faith have felt that since by affirming their full faith they might call down upon themselves the ridicule of their unbelieving colleagues. They must either modify or explain away their faith or destructively dilute it or even pretend to cast it away. Such are hypocrites. None of us would wish to wear such a label, and yet we are reluctant to declare our faith in some circumstances. We can help ourselves in our desire to do that which is right if we put ourselves in places and participate in activities where our thoughts are influenced for good and where the Spirit of the Lord will be comfortable. I recall reading some time ago the counsel a father gave to his son when he went away to school. I'll quote it. If you ever find yourself where you shouldn't ought to be, get out. Close quote. 
I offer to each of you the same advice. If you ever find yourself where you shouldn't ought to be, get out. The call for courage comes constantly to each of us. Every day of our lives, courage is needed. Not, not just for the momentous events, but we more often need that as we respond to circumstances around us. Said Scottish poet and novelist Robert Louis Stevenson, and I quote, Every courage has few witnesses, but yours is no less noble because no drum beats for you and no crowd shouts your name. Close quote. Courage comes in many forms, wrote the Christian author Charles Swindoll. Courage is not limited to the battlefield or to bravely catching a thief in the house. The real tests of courage are much quieter. They are inner tests, like remaining faithful when nobody is looking, like standing alone when you are misunderstood. Close quote. I would add that this inner courage also includes doing the right thing, even though we may be afraid, defending our beliefs at the risk of being ridiculed, and maintaining those beliefs even when threatened with a loss of friends or social status. He who stands steadfastly for that which is right must risk becoming at times disapproved and unpopular. While serving in the United States Navy in World War II, I learned of brave deeds, instances of valor, and examples of courage. One which I shall never forget was the quiet courage of an 18-year-old seaman, not of our faith, who was not too proud to pray. Of 250 men in the company, he was the only one who each night knelt down by the side of his bunk, at times amidst the jeers of bullies and the jests of unbelievers. With bowed head, he prayed to God. He never wavered. He never faltered. He had courage. I listened not long ago to an example of one who surely seemed to lack this inner courage. A friend told of a spiritual and faith-promoting sacrament meeting she and her husband had attended in their ward. A young man who held the office of priest in the Aaronic priesthood touched the hearts of the entire congregation as he spoke of gospel truths and of the joys of keeping the commandments. He bore a fervent, touching testimony as he stood at the pulpit, appearing clean and neat in his white shirt and tie. Later that same day, as this woman and her husband drove out of their neighborhood, they saw this same young man who had so inspired them just a few hours earlier. Now, however, he presented a completely different picture as he walked down the sidewalk dressed in scuffy clothes and smoking a cigarette. My friend and her husband were not only greatly disappointed and saddened, but they were also confused by how he could be so convincingly 
one person in sacrament meeting and then so quickly seemed to be someone else entirely. Brethren, are you the same person wherever you are and whatever you're doing? The person our Heavenly Father wants you to be and the person you know you should be. In an interview published in a national magazine, well-known American NCAA basketball player Yabari Parker, a member of the Church, was asked to share the best advice he'd received from his father. Replied Jabari, and I quote, My father said, Just be the same person you are in the dark that you are in the night. The light. I would quote it. Just be the same person in the dark that you are in the light. Close quote. Important advice, brethren, for all of us. Our scriptures are filled with examples of the type of courage needed by each one of us today. The prophet Daniel exhibited supreme courage, standing up for that which he knew to be right, and by demonstrating the courage to pray, though threatened with death, were he to do so. Courage characterized the life of Abinadi, as shown by his willingness to offer his life rather than to deny the truth. Who can help but be inspired by the lives of the 2,000 stripling sons of Helaman, who taught and demonstrated the need for courage to follow the teachings of parents, to be chaste and pure? Perhaps each of these scriptural accounts is crowned by the example of Moroni, who had the courage to persevere in righteousness to the very end. Throughout his life, the prophet Joseph Smith provided countless examples of courage. One of the most dramatic occurred as he and other brethren were chained together, imagine, chained together and held in an unfinished cabin next to the courthouse in Richmond, Missouri. Parley P. Pratt was among those held captive wrote of one particular night, and I quote, We had lain as if in sleep till the hour of midnight had passed, and our ears and hearts had been pained while we had listened for hours to the obscene jests, the horrid oaths, the dreadful blasphemies, and filthy language of our guards, close quote. Continued Elder Pratt, I had listened till I became so disgusted, shocked, horrified, and so filled with the spirit of indignant justice that I could scarcely refrain from rising upon my feet and rebuking the guards. But I had said nothing to Joseph or anyone else, although I lay next to him and knew he was awake. All of a sudden, he rose to his feet and spoke in a voice of thunder, or as the roaring lion, uttering as near as I can recollect the words, Silence! In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and sear such language. Cease such talk, or you or I die this instant. Joseph stood erect 
in terrible majesty as described by Elder Pratt. He was chained without a weapon, and yet he was calm and dignified. He looked down upon the quailing guards who were shrinking into a corner or crouching at his feet. These seemingly incorrigible men begged his pardon and remained quiet. Not all acts of courage bring such spectacular or immediate results, and yet all of them do bring peace of mind and a knowledge that right and truth have been defended. It is impossible to stand upright when one plants his roots in the shifting sands of popular opinion and approval. Needed is the courage of a Daniel, an Abinadi, a Moroni, or a Joseph Smith in order for us to hold strong and fast to that which we know is right. They had the courage to do not that which was easy, but that which was right. We will all face fear, experience ridicule, and meet opposition. Let us, all of us, have the courage to defy the consensus, the courage to stand for principle, courage, not compromise, brings the smile of God's approval. Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but also as the determination to live decently. As we move forward, striving to live as we should, we will surely receive help from the Lord and can find comfort in His words. I love His promise recorded in the book of Joshua. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Close quote. My beloved brethren, with the courage of our convictions, may we declare with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then with that same courage, may we follow Paul's counsel. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Catastrophic conflicts come and go, but the war waged for the souls of men continues without abatement. Like a clarion call comes the word of the Lord to you, to me, and to priesthood holders everywhere. Wherefore now let every man learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. Then we will be, as the Apostle Peter declared, even a royal priesthood, united in purpose and endowed with power from on high. May each one leave here tonight with the determination 
and the courage to say with Job of old, While my breath is in me, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Close quote. That this may be true is my humble prayer. And I offer it sincerely in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My dear brothers, I am grateful to be in this meeting with you tonight. Pray that the Spirit of the Lord may be with me and with you. We all have heroes, particularly when we are young. I was born and grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, in the United States. The most famous sports teams near where we lived were headquartered in New York City. It was the home of three professional baseball teams in those faraway days, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, and the New York Yankees. Philadelphia was even closer to our home, and it was the home of the Athletics and Phillies baseball teams. There were many potential baseball heroes for me on those teams. Joe DiMaggio, who played for the New York Yankees, for some reason became my baseball hero. When my brothers and my friends played baseball on the school grounds next to our house, I tried to swing the bat the way I thought Joe DiMaggio did it. That was before the days of television. This is ancient history. So I only had pictures from the newspaper to use to copy his swing. When I was growing up, my father drove me to Yankee Stadium. That was the only time I saw Joe DiMaggio play. As if I am still there, in my mind, I can see him swing the bat and see the white baseball fly straight into the stands at center field. Now, my baseball skills never came close to those of my childhood hero. But the few times I hit a baseball well, I copied the levels of his powerful swing as closely as I could. When we choose heroes, we begin to copy, consciously or unconsciously, what we admire most in them. Happily, my wise parents put great heroes in my path as a boy. My dad took me to Yankee Stadium only once to observe my baseball hero play. But every Sunday, he let me observe a priesthood man who became a hero. That hero shaped my life. My father was the branch president of the little branch which met in our home. If you came down Sunday morning, by the way, you were in church if you came down on the first floor. Our branch never had more than 30 people in attendance. There was a young man who drove his mother to our house for meetings, but he never came into the house. He was not a member. It was my father who succeeded by going out to him where he'd parked the car and inviting him into our home. He was baptized and became my first and only Aaronic priesthood leader. He became my priesthood hero. 
I still remember the wooden statue he gave me as a reward after we had completed a project to cut firewood for a widow. I have tried to be like him whenever I give justified praise to a servant of God. I chose another hero in that little branch of the Church. He was a United States Marine who came to our meetings wearing his green Marine uniform. It was wartime, so that alone made him my hero. He had been sent to Princeton University by the Marines to further his education. But far more than his military uniform, I watched him play in Palmer Stadium as captain of the Princeton University football team. I saw him play on the university basketball team and also watched him play as the star catcher on their baseball team. But even more, he came to my home during the week to show me how to shoot a basketball with both my left and my right hand. He told me that I would need that skill because I would someday play basketball on good teams. I did not realize it then, but for years he was for me a model of a true priesthood man. Each of you will be a model of a priesthood man whether you want to be or not. You become a lighted candle when you accepted the priesthood. The Lord puts you on the candlestick to light the way for everyone who surrounds you. That is especially true for those in your priesthood quorum. You can be a great model, an average one, or a bad model. You may think it doesn't matter to you, but it does to the Lord. He said it this way, quote, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I have been blessed by examples of great priesthood holders in quorums where I was fortunate to serve. You can do what they have done for me by being an example for others to follow. I have observed three common characteristics of the priesthood holders who are my heroes. One is a pattern of prayer. The second is a habit of service. And the third is a rock-hard decision, to be honest. We all pray, but the priesthood holder you want to be, be prays often and with real intent. In the evening, you will get on your knees and thank God for the blessings of the day. You will thank Him for parents, for teachers, and for great examples to follow. You will describe in your prayers specifically who has blessed your life and how during that day. That will take more than a few minutes and more than a little thought. It will surprise you and change you. As you pray for forgiveness, 
you will find yourselves forgiving others. As you thank God for His kindness, you will think of others by name who need your kindness. Again, that experience will surprise you every day, and over time, it will change you. One way you will be changed by such fervent prayer is I promise you that you will feel truly that you are a child of God. When you know that you are a child of God, you also know that He expects much of you. As His child, He will expect you to follow His teachings and the teachings of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. He will expect you to be generous and kind to others. He will be disappointed if you are proud and self-centered. He will bless you to have the desire to put the interests of others above your own. Some of you are already models of unselfish priesthood service. In temples across the world, priesthood holders arrive before sunrise, and some serve long after sunset. There is no recognition or public acclaim in this world for that sacrifice of time and effort. I have gone with young people as they serve those in the spirit world who are not able to claim temple blessings for themselves. As I see happiness rather than fatigue in the faces of those who serve there early and late, I know there are great rewards in this life for that type of unselfish priesthood service. But it is only a token of the joy they will share with those whom they served in the spirit world. I have seen that same happiness in the faces of those who speak to others about the blessings which come from belonging to the kingdom of God. I know of a branch president who almost every day brings people to the missionaries for them to teach. Just a few months ago, he was not yet a member of the Church himself. Now there are missionaries teaching and a branch growing in numbers and strength because of him. But more than that, he is a light to others who will open their mouths and so hasten the Lord's gathering of his children, the children of our Heavenly Father. As you pray and serve others, your knowledge that you are a child of God and your feeling about it will grow. You will become more aware that He is saddened if you are dishonest in any way. You will be more determined to keep your word to God and to others. You will be more aware of taking anything that does not belong to you. You will be more honest with your employers. You will be more determined to be on time and to complete every task you are given by the Lord that you have accepted to do. Rather than wondering if their home teachers will come, children in the families you are called to teach will look forward with anticipation to your visit. My children have received that blessing. As they grew, they had priesthood heroes help them set their own courses in serving the Lord. That blessed example is now passing into the third generation. My message is also one of thanks. I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for getting on your knees in recognition of the fact that you don't have all the answers. You pray to the God of heaven 
to express your gratitude and to invoke his blessings upon your lives and your families. I thank you for your service to others and for the times you felt no need for acknowledgement of your service. We have accepted the Lord's warning that if we seek credit in this world for our service, we may forfeit greater blessings. You will remember these words, quote, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father, which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly." Those who have been my models of great priesthood holders do not easily recognize that they possess heroic qualities. In fact, they seem to have difficulty seeing those things that I so much admire in them. I mentioned my father was a faithful president of a tiny branch of the Church in New Jersey. He later was a member of the Sunday School General Board for the Church, yet I am careful today to speak modestly about his priesthood service because he was modest. The same is true for the Marine, who was my childhood hero. He never spoke to me of his priesthood service or of his accomplishments. He just gave service. I learned about his faithfulness from others. If he even saw the characteristics in himself that I admired, I could not tell. So my counsel to to you, who want to bless others with your priesthood, has to do with your life, which is private to all but God. Pray to him. Thank him for all that is good in your life. Ask him to know what individuals he has placed in your way for you to serve. Plead that he will help you give that service. Pray so that you can forgive and so that you can be forgiven. Then serve them, love them, and forgive them. Above all, remember that of all the service you give, none is greater than to help people choose to qualify for eternal life. God has given that overarching direction to us on how to use our priesthood. He is the perfect example of it. This is the example we see in small part in the best of his mortal servants. Quote, And the Lord God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof even so shall another come, and there is no end to my works, neither to my words, for behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man." We are to help in that work. Each of us can make a difference. We have been prepared for our time and place in the last days of that sacred work. Each of us has been blessed 
with examples of those who have made that work the overriding purpose of their time on earth. I pray that we may help each other rise to that opportunity. God the Father lives and will answer your prayers for the help you need to serve Him well. Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. This is His Church. The priesthood you hold is the power to act in His name, in His work, to serve the children of God. As you give your whole heart to this work, He will magnify you. I so promise in His name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Nearly 200 years ago, the American short story, Rip Van Winkle, became an instant classic. The main character, Rip, is an unambitious man who is very good at avoiding two things, work and his wife. (laughs) One day, while wandering in the mountains with his dog, he discovers a group of strangely dressed men drinking and playing games. After accepting some of their liquor, Rip becomes drowsy and closes his eyes for a moment. When he opens his eyes again, he is surprised to find that his dog is gone, his rival has rusted, and he now has a long beard. Rip makes his way back to his village, only to discover that everything has changed. His wife has died, his friends are gone, and the portrait of King George III in the tavern has been replaced by a portrait of someone he does not recognize, by General George Washington. Rip Van Winkle had been sleeping for 20 years. And in the process, he had missed one of the most exciting periods in the history of his country. He had slept through the American Revolution. In May of 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used this story as an illustration for his speech, Don't Sleep Through the Revolution. Today, I would like to take the same theme and propose a question to all of us who hold God's priesthood. Are you sleeping through the Restoration? Sometimes we think of the restoration of the gospel as something that is complete, already behind us. Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. He received priesthood keys. The church was organized. In reality, the restoration is an ongoing process. We are living in it right now. It includes all that God has revealed all that he does now reveal, and the many great and important things he will yet reveal. Brethren, the exciting developments of today are part of that long foretold period of preparation that will culminate in the glorious second coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is one of the most remarkable periods of the world's history. Ancient prophets yearned to see our day. When our time in mortality is complete, 
What experiences will we be able to share about our own contribution to this significant period of our lives and to the furthering of Lord's work? Will we be able to say that we rolled up our sleeves and labored with all our heart, might, mind, and strength? Or will we have to admit that our role was mostly that of an observer? I suppose there are many reasons why it is easy to become a bit sleepy with regard to building the kingdom of God. Let me mention three major ones. As I do, I invite you and all of us to ponder if any might apply. If you see room for improvement, I ask you to consider what could be done to change for the better. First, selfishness, and we have heard about selfishness tonight already. Selfishness. Those who are selfish seek their own interests and pleasure above all else. The central question for the selfish person is, what is in it for me? Brethren, I am sure you can see that this attitude is clearly contrary to the spirit required to build God's kingdom. When we seek self-service over selfless service, our priorities become centered on our own recognition and pleasure. Past generations had their struggle with variations of egotism and narcissism. But I think today we're giving them serious competition. Is it any coincidence that the Oxford Dictionary recently proclaimed selfie as a word of the year? <laughs> Naturally, we all have a desire for recognition, and there's nothing wrong with relaxing and enjoying ourselves. But when seeking the gain and the praise of the world is a central part of our motivation, we will miss the redemptive and joyful experiences that come when we give generously of ourselves to the work of the Lord. What is the remedy? The answer, as always, lies in the words of Christ. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Those who wholeheartedly turn their lives over to our Savior and serve God and fellow men discover a richness and fullness to life that the selfish or egotistic will never experience. The unselfish gift of themselves. These may be small gifts of charity that have a grand impact for good. A smile, a handshake, a hug, time spent in listening, a soft word of encouragement or a gesture of caring. 
All these acts of kindness can change hearts and lives. When we take advantage of the unlimited opportunities to love and serve our fellow men, including our spouse and family, our capacity to love God and to serve others will greatly increase. Those who serve others will not sleep through the restoration. Another thing that may cause us to sleepwalk through this significant season of the world is addiction. Addictions often begin subtly. Addictions are thin threads of repeated action that weave themselves into thick bonds of habit. Negative habits have the potential to become consuming addictions. These binding chains of addiction can have many forms, like pornography, alcohol, sex, drugs, tobacco, gambling, food, work, the Internet, or virtual reality. Satan, our common enemy, has many favorite tools he uses to rob us of our divine potential to accomplish our mission in the Lord's kingdom. It saddens our Heavenly Father to see how willingly some of his noble sons extend their wrists to accept the chains, chains of devastating addictions. Brethren, we bear the eternal priesthood of Almighty God. We are truly sons of the Most High and are endowed with unspeakable potential. We are designed to soar freely through the heavens. We are not meant to be shackled to the earth, imprisoned in straitjackets of our own making. What is the remedy? The first thing we must understand is that addictions are so much easier to prevent than to cure. In the Savior's words, suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. Several years ago, President Monson and I were offered an opportunity to tour Air Force One, the magnificent aircraft that transports the President of the United States. There were painstaking security checks by the Secret Service, and I somehow smiled a little as agents searched our dear prophet prior to boarding. <laughs> then the pilot in command invited me to take the captain's seat. It was a remarkable experience to again sit at the helm of a wonderful flying machine like the kind I had flown for so many years. Memories of flights across oceans and continents filled my heart and mind. I envisioned exciting takeoffs and landings at airports all over the world. Almost unconsciously, I placed my hands on the four throttles of the 747. Just then, a beloved and unmistakable voice came from behind. 
the voice of Thomas S. Monson. Dieter, he said, don't even think about it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not admitting to anything, but um, <laughs> it just may be that President Monson read my mind. When we're tempted to do things we should not do, brethren, please let us listen to the loving warning of trusted family, friends, our beloved prophet, and of course, always the Savior. The best defense against addiction is never to start. But what of those who find themselves in the grip of addiction? Please know, first of all, that there is hope. Seek help from loved ones, church leaders, and trained counselors. The Church provides addiction recovery help through local church leaders, the Internet, and in some areas through LDS Family Services. Always remember, with the Savior's help, you can break free from addiction. It may be a long, difficult path, but the Lord will not give up on you. He loves you. Jesus Christ suffered the atonement to help you change, to free you from the captivity of sin. The most important thing is to keep trying. Sometimes it takes several attempts before people find success. So don't give up. Don't lose faith. Keep your heart close to the Lord, and He will give you the power of deliverance. He will make you free. My dear brethren, always keep far away from habits that could lead to addiction. Those who do so will be able to devote their heart, might, mind, and strength to the service of God. They will not sleep through the restoration. A third obstacle that prevents us from fully engaging in this work is the many competing priorities we face. Some of us are so busy that we feel like a cart pulled by a dozen work animals, each straining in a different direction. A lot of energy is expended, but the cart doesn't go anywhere. Often we devote our best efforts in pursuit of a hobby, a sport, vocational interests, community or political issues. All these things may be good and honorable, but are they leaving us time and energy for what should be our highest priorities? What is the remedy? Once again, it comes from the words of the Savior. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Everything else in life should be secondary to these two great priorities. Even in church service, it is easy to spend a lot of time just going through the motions without the heart or the substance of discipleship. Brethren, we as priesthood bearers have committed to be a people who love God and our neighbor and are willing to demonstrate that love through word and deed. That is the essence of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who live up to these principles will not sleep through the restoration. The Apostle Paul wrote, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. My dear friends, know that you are sons of light. Don't allow selfishness. Don't allow habits that could lead to addiction. Don't allow competing priorities to lull you into indifference or detachment from blessed discipleship and ennobling priesthood service. There's too much at stake for us as individuals, as families, and as Christ's Church to give only a half-hearted effort to this sacred work. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not an effort of once a week or once a day. It is an effort of once and for all. The Lord's promise to his true priesthood holders is almost too grand to comprehend. Those who are faithful unto these two priesthoods and magnify their callings are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. Therefore, all that our Father has will be given unto them. I testify that the glancing power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ and the transformative power of the Holy Ghost can heal and rescue mankind. It is our privilege, our sacred duty, and our joy to heed the Savior's call, to follow Him with a willing mind and full purpose of heart. Let us shake off the change with which we are bound and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust. Let us be awake and not be weary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. Brethren, when we add the light of our example as a witness to the beauty and power of restored truth, we will not sleep through the restoration. Of this I testify and leave you my blessing in the sacred name of our Master, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Young men, you have probably heard before that you are a chosen generation, meaning that God chose and prepared you to come to earth at this time for a great purpose. I know this to be true, but this evening I would like to address you as the choice generation, because never before in history have individuals had so many choices.
More choices mean more opportunities. More opportunities mean more potential to do good and, unfortunately, evil. I believe that God sent you here at this time because He trusts you to successfully discern among the mind-boggling choices available. In 1974, President Spencer W. Kimball said, I believe that the Lord is anxious to put into our hands inventions of which we laymen have hardly had a glimpse. Close quote. And He has. You are growing up with one of the greatest tools for good in the history of man, the Internet. With it comes an elaborate buffet of choices. The abundance of choice, however, carries with it an equal portion of accountability. It facilitates your access to both the very best and the very worst the world has to offer. With it, you can accomplish great things in a short period of time, or you can get it caught up in endless loops of triviality that waste your time and degrade your potential. With the click of a button, you can access whatever your heart desires. And that's the key. What does your heart desire? What do you gravitate toward? Where will your desires lead? Remember that God granteth unto men according to their desire, and that He will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their heart. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, In a real, though figurative sense, the book of life is the record of the acts of men, as such record is written in their own bodies, that is, every thought, word, and deed has an effect on the human body. All these leave their marks, marks which can be read by Him who is eternal as easily as the words in a book can be read. Close quote. The Internet also records your desires, expressed in the form of searches and clicks. There are legions waiting to fill those desires. As you surf the Internet, you leave tracks. What you communicate, where you have been, how long you have been there, and the kinds of things that interest you. In this way, the Internet creates a cyber profile for you, in a sense, your cyber book of life. As in life, the Internet will give you more and more of what you seek. If your desires are pure, the Internet can magnify them, making it ever easier to engage in worthy pursuits. But the opposite is also true. Elder Neil A. Maxwell put it this way, What we insistently desire over time is what we will eventually become and what we will receive in eternity. Only by educating and training our desires can they become our allies instead of our enemies. Close quote. My young brothers, if you are not proactive in educating your desires, the world will do it for you. Every day the world seeks to influence your desires, enticing you to buy something, click on something, play something, 
read or watch something, ultimately the choice is yours. You have agency. It is the power to not only act on your desires, but to also refine, purify, and elevate your desires. Agency is your power to become. Each choice takes you closer to or further from what you were meant to become. Each click has meaning. Always ask yourself, where will this choice lead? Develop the ability to see beyond the moment. Satan wants to control your agency so he can control what you become. He knows that one of the best ways to do this is by trapping you with addictive behavior. Your choices determine whether technology will empower you or enslave you. May I offer four principles to help you, the choice generation, educate your desires and guide your use of technology. First, knowing who you really are makes decisions easier. I have a friend who learned this truth in a very personal way. His son was raised in the gospel, but he seemed to be wandering spiritually. He frequently declined opportunities to exercise the priesthood. His parents were disappointed when he declared that he had decided not to serve a mission. My friend prayed earnestly for his son, hoping that he would have a change of heart. Those hopes were dashed when his son announced that he was engaged to be married, not in the temple. The father pleaded with his son to get his patriarchal blessing. The the son finally agreed but insisted on visiting the patriarch alone. When he returned after the blessing, he was very emotional. He took his girlfriend outside where he could talk to her privately. The father peeked out the window to see the young couple wiping away each other's tears. Later, he shared with his father what had happened. With great emotion, he he explained that during the blessing, he had a glimpse of who he was in the premortal world. He saw how valiant and influential he was in persuading others to follow Christ. Knowing who he really was, how could he not serve a mission? Young men, remember who you really are. Remember that you hold the holy priesthood. This will inspire you to make the correct choices as you use the Internet and throughout your life. Second, plug into the source of power. Right in the palm of your hand, you have the wisdom of the ages. More importantly, the words of the prophets from Old Testament days to Thomas S. Monson. But if you don't regularly recharge your cell phone, it is useless, and you feel lost and out of touch. You wouldn't think of going a single day without charging your battery. As important as it is to leave home every day with a full charge on your cell phone, it is far more important to be fully charged spiritually. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord 
to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. Many of us immediately stop whatever we are doing to read a text message. Should we not place more importance on messages from the Lord? Neglecting to connect to this power should be unthinkable to us. Third, owning a smartphone does not make you smart. (laughs) But using it wisely can. Young men, don't do dumb things with your smartphone. You all know what I mean, don't you? There are countless ways technology can distract you from what is most important. Follow the adage, be where you are when you are there. When you are driving, drive. When you are in class, focus on the lesson. When you are with your friends, give them the gift of your attention. Your brain cannot concentrate on two things at once. Multitasking amounts to quickly shifting your focus from one thing to another. An old proverb says, If you chase two rabbits, you won't catch either one. Lastly, the Lord provides technology to accomplish His purposes. The divine purpose of technology is to hasten the work of salvation. As members of the Choice Generation, you understand technology. Use it to accelerate your progress toward perfection. Because you have been given much, you too must give. The Lord expects you to use these great tools to take His work to the next level to share the gospel in ways that are beyond my generation's wildest imagination. Where generations past influenced their neighbors and their town, you have the power through the Internet and social media to reach beyond borders and influence the whole world. I testify that this is the Lord's Church. You were chosen to participate in His work at this time because He trusts you to make the right choices. You are the choice generation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we visualize this worldwide meeting, we are reminded that there is nothing comparable to this gathering anywhere. The purpose of the priesthood session of General Conference is to teach priesthood holders what manner of men we ought to be and to inspire us to reach that ideal. In my ironic priesthood years in Hawaii half a century ago, and as a missionary in England, we would gather in meeting houses and with intense effort listen to the priesthood session using a telephone connection. In later years, satellites allowed broadcasts to selected Church locations with those enormous dish receivers so we could both hear and view the proceedings. We were in awe of that technology. Few could have imagined today's world where anyone who has access to the Internet with a smartphone, tablet, or computer can receive the messages of this meeting. However, 
this vastly increased accessibility to the Lord's voices, to the voices of the Lord's servants, which are the same as the Lord's own voice, has little value unless we are willing to receive the word and then follow it. Simply stated, the purpose of general conference and of this priesthood session is only fulfilled if we are willing to act, if we are willing to change. Several decades ago, I was serving as a bishop. Over an extended period, I met with a man in our ward who was many years my senior. This brother had a troubled relationship with his wife and was estranged from their children. He struggled to keep employment, had no close friends, and found interaction with ward members so difficult he finally was unwilling to serve in the Church. During one intense discussion about the challenges in his life, he leaned toward me as his conclusion to our numerous talks and said, Bishop, I have a bad temper, and that's just the way I am. That statement stunned me that night and has haunted me ever since. Once this man decided, once any of us conclude that's just the way I am, we give up our ability to change. We might as well raise the white flag, put down our weapons, concede the battle, and just surrender. Any prospect of winning is lost. While some of us may think that does not describe ourselves, perhaps every one of us demonstrates by at least one or two bad habits, that's just the way I am. Well, we meet in this priesthood meeting because who we are is not who we can become. We meet here tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. We meet with the confidence that His Atonement gives every one of us, no matter our weaknesses, our frailties, our addictions, the ability to change. We meet with the hope that our future, no matter our history, can be better. When we participate in this meeting with the real intent to change, the Spirit has full access to our hearts and minds. As the Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, And it shall come to pass that inasmuch as they exercise faith in me— remember, faith is a principle of power and of action— I will pour out my Spirit upon them in the day they assemble themselves together. That means tonight. If you think your challenges are insurmountable, let me tell you of a man we met in a small village outside of Hyderabad, India, in 2006. This man exemplified a willingness to change. Nulu was born in rural India. When he was three years old, he contracted polio and was left physically disabled. His society taught him that his potential was severely limited. However, as a young adult, he met our missionaries. They taught him of a greater potential, both in this life and in the eternity to come. He was baptized and confirmed a member of the Church. With a significantly raised vision, he set a goal to receive the Melchizedek priesthood and to serve a full-time mission. 
1986, he was ordained an elder and called to serve in India. Walking was not easy. He did his best using a cane in each hand, and he fell often. But quitting was never an option. He made a commitment to honorably and devotedly serve a mission, and he did. When we met Brother Nulu nearly 20 years after his mission, he cheerfully greeted us where the road ended and led us down an uneven dirt path to the two-room home he shared with his wife and three children. It was an extremely hot and uncomfortable day. He still walked with great difficulty, but there was no self-pity. Through personal diligence, he has become a teacher, providing schooling for the village children. When we entered his modest house, he immediately took me to a corner and pulled out a box that contained his most important possessions. He wanted me to see a piece of paper. It read, With good wishes and blessings to Elder Nulu, a courageous and happy missionary. Dated June 25, 1987, signed Boyd K. Packer. On that occasion, when then Elder Packer visited India and spoke to a group of missionaries, he affirmed to Elder Nulu his potential. In essence, what Brother Nulu was telling me that day in 2006 was that the gospel had changed him permanently. On this visit to the Nulu home, we were accompanied by the mission president. He was there to interview Brother Nulu, his wife, and his children, for the parents to receive their endowments and be sealed, and for the children to be sealed to their parents. We also presented the family with arrangements for them to travel to the Hong Kong China Temple for these ordinances. They wept with joy as their long-awaited dream was to be realized. What is expected of a holder of the priesthood of God? What changes are required of us to become the manner of men we ought to be? I make three suggestions. Number one, we need to be priesthood men. Whether we are young men holding the Aaronic priesthood or men bearing the Melchizedek priesthood, we need to be priesthood men showing spiritual maturity because we have made covenants. As Paul said, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. We should be different because we hold the priesthood. Not arrogant or prideful or patronizing, but humble and teachable and meek. Receiving the priesthood and its various offices should mean something to us. It should not be a perfunctory rite of passage that automatically happens at certain ages, but a sacred act of covenant thoughtfully made. We should feel so privileged and so grateful that our every action shows it. If we seldom even think about the priesthood, we need to change. Number two, we need to serve. The essence of holding the priesthood is to magnify our calling by serving others. Avoiding our most important duty to serve our wives and children, 
not accepting or passively fulfilling callings in the church, or not caring about others unless it is convenient, is not who we should be. The Savior declared, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and later added, If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me. Selfishness is the antithesis of priesthood responsibility, and if it is a trait of our character, we need to change. Number three, we need to be worthy. I may not have the ability of Elder Holland when he spoke in a priesthood session a few years ago to get in your face nose to nose with just enough fire to singe your eyebrows. But dear brethren, we need to wake up to how commonly accepted practices in the world choke our power in the priesthood. If we think we can even flirt with pornography or violations of chastity or dishonesty in any form and not have it negatively affect us and our families, we are deceived. Moroni stated, See that ye do all things in worthiness. The Lord powerfully directed, And now I give unto you a commandment to beware concerning yourselves, to give diligent heed to the words of eternal life. If there are any unresolved sins preventing our worthiness, we need to change. The only complete response to the question posed by Jesus Christ, what manner of men ought ye to be, is the one he succinctly and profoundly gave, even as I am. The invitation to come unto Christ and be perfected in him both requires and expects change. Mercifully, he has not left us alone. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Then will I make weak things become strong. Relying upon the Savior's atonement, we can change. Of this I am certain. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.